Amen. Well, good morning. So glad that you are here today. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Nehemiah. Um, we are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 3 today. Uh, as you know, uh, the, the theme of this message, if you've been with us, you know it is this, rise up and build. If you haven't been with us over the past several weeks, let me give you just a little bit of a background of, of where we're at, what has gotten us to this point. But um, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army captured the Jews. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the walls around Jerusalem, and they, they captured the Jews, and, and the people were deported and were forced into slavery as Jerusalem lied in ruins. But they wouldn't remain in Babylon. Eventually, they would be allowed to go back. Um, the, the Persian king would assume leadership, and he would allow the people of, of Israel to return to the land. In fact, they would return in about three different waves over a period of 100 years. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, okay, um, he's the, the, the author of this book, and he's kind of the focal um, person within our, our story. But Nebuchadnezzar was the cupbearer to the king. Okay, if you recall, the cupbearer was the one who took the wine, tasted it first to make sure that it had not been poisoned before giving it to the king. I think all of us need a cupbearer in our life, don't you? Um, but, but that was his job. I don't think anybody in the world would want that job, but somehow Nebuchadnezzar, or Nehemiah became the person tasked with, with being the cupbearer um, to the king. Well, Nehemiah gets word of the condition of Jerusalem. His brethren comes to him and says that the city still lies in ruin. The walls are still destroyed. The gates are still destroyed. And basically, he gets word that the people of God are vulnerable before the nations of the world. And so Nehemiah hits the ground and he begins to pray. He, he fasts and he repents of his own sin and he repents of the sin of his people, and then um, he wouldn't remain on that ground, would he? He would rise up, and he would become the change agent that God had created him to be. He'd spend about four months praying, and after four months of prayer, he finally had the opportunity to address the king, share God's vision with the king, and the king released him to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And that's kind of where we were at last week. We saw Nehemiah come into the city of Jerusalem. And while he was there, he kind of went out at night on a reconnaissance mission, recognized all that needed to be done. And then he gathers all of the leaders together. And he begins to share with them God's vision, the one that God had placed upon upon his heart. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18, we get an idea of what, what Nehemiah did. And Nehemiah wrote, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And so that's where we're at this morning. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 3, we're going to see men and women begin to rebuild those walls to once again fortify that city so that God's glory could return and God's people would reflect that glory once again. 
Here's what our focal point is this morning. It is this. Everyone has a job to do. Every single one of us in this room, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a job to do. You have been given a ministry and a mission. And we know what that is. That is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We do that locally and we do that globally as well. So before we dive into chapter 3, let me just um, walk back to Nehemiah chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 19 and 20. This is where we left off last week. So let me read these verses to you. We read, But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant of Gisham the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this saying that you are doing? Are you rebuilding against the king? Are, are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. We've already looked at these two guys before, but what these two guys are, as well as others, is they're bullies. How many of you have ever uh, encountered a bully in your life? Raise your hand. Okay, growing up, um, there were some bullies that, that, that picked on me. Okay, um, when we first moved to Wiley, um, I wasn't the tallest kid in the class. Probably at that time, I was, a, I was one of the shorter ones, and I was what you would call a little bit stocky. Um, and so my last name is Walmack. So just imagine the names that you can put with Mac, and that's what I was called. I was picked on. I remember one day um, my brother um, took up for me. Um, all the neighborhood kids that had been bullying me, um, he, he kind of took care of them for me. Now, he didn't use his physical strength to take care of them, but he kind of threatened them with some words. And, you know, sometimes um, bullies need to be addressed properly. But, but Nehemiah takes a different approach of threatening um, those that were picking on, on the Israelites he kind of shares with them these words. He says, he says, God will make us prosper. We, his servants, will arise and build. You have no portion or claim in Jerusalem. I love that, that that's the approach that Nehemiah took. Nehemiah, man, they could have gone to war right there on the spot. Nehemiah could have handled them once and for all, but he didn't. He allowed God to fight his battle for him. And that's how you and I need to respond to conflict as well. We need to allow God to fight our battles for us. Now remember, Jerusalem is not just some city in Israel. Jerusalem was God's holy city. It's where the temple was. It's where sacrifices occurred. It's where the people of God were. In fact, Jerusalem was such a, 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 a important place that that the psalmist wrote these words about it. In Psalm 48, 1 through 3, we read these words. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. That is Jerusalem, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion. In the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. The rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem would once again establish before the nations of the world 
that, that, um, that, that God's glory had been restored within that city through his people. You know, you and I live in a day and an age that God's glory needs to be restored, right? Needs to be returned. And, and that returning begins within us, his church, within us, believers. You know, there is a sad, um, the sad reality today is that there are fewer people that are sitting in our pews today within evangelical church than there has been in history's past. And while our churches, the evangelical churches, are diminishing in size, cults and other religious groups are rising in attendance. This past week, I was taking one of my classes at New Orleans Seminary. And it was a class on church revitalization. And one of the books that we were required to read was a book entitled Revision. And within that book, it talked about the mass exodus, um, really, of, of evangelicals from the church and really focused in on millennials, 20-something. Some of these people grew up in the church. Others did not grow up in the church. But one thing that really startled me was this. Um, the authors indicated that people are leaving the church or not going to the church, not because they are less spiritual. They are more probably spiritual than, than, than ever. They're just not going to church because church is not providing for them what they are looking for. But you know where they are going? Notice these statistics up here on, on the screen. I don't know if you can read those very well or not, but, but these are from, this book was kind of an older book, but between 1990 and 2008, add another 11 years to this, and you can kind of get an idea of where um, these places are going. But Mormons, for example, they went from about 2.5 million to 3.2 million, an increase of 27%. Jehovah Witnesses increased during that same period, 39%. Muslims increased during that same period, 156%. Buddhists, 194%. Wiccans, 4,175%. U.S. population during this period of time went from 250 million to about 309 million an increase of 24.1%. But notice that last, U.S. church attendance, 51,819,990 to 51,700,2006, a decrease of 0.2%. What does that tell us as a church? That tells me that we are not reaching people with the gospel. But it tells me that these other religious groups, they are reaching people. And you know what? Every single one of those groups are doing is they're leading people on a collision course with hell. We are the only ones that contain the truth within us, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. There is only one way to Jesus, and that is our one way to God the Father in heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. Folks, we got some work to do is what we have. And Nehemiah had some work to do. There was a wall that, that was in shambles. There were gates that were still destroyed. And it was time to rise up and build. And that leads us where we're at this morning. As we read, we're not going to read through Nehemiah chapter 3, okay? I'm going to save you that, okay? 
But I do want you to go back and read Nehemiah chapter 3 today. We're going to look at a few verses, but as you read through Nehemiah chapter 3, what you may think is, man, this is like reading through Chronicles. It's just person after person, name after name that I cannot pronounce, okay? And that's me saying that, okay? Um, and so I'm not going to butcher a bunch of names. Well, I actually, I'm going to butcher a bunch of names today, so forgive me for that. But this is how I read them, probably incorrectly, but this is how I read them. But notice our first point this morning, it is this, a common vision. In Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we read these words. Then Elishim, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Emery, built. The people of Jerusalem had a job to do, and that was to rebuild walls and rebuild gates. You realize that they accomplished this in about 52 days. An absolute marvel when you think about it. I mean, they repaired hundreds of yards worth of gates. And they did it in walls in 52 days. Here's the deal. They fortified the city so that they would no longer be a laughingstock amongst the nations of the world. And here's what we see this morning. A common vision for a glorious work. In verse 1, we read that the first thing the Israelites did is they rebuilt the sheep gate. Think to yourself, why would they start with the sheep gate? Why didn't they start with the dung gate or the fish gate or one of these other gates? They started with the sheep gate because it was through the sheep gate that a shepherd would bring the sheep into the city. And some of those sheep would go to market, and others of those sheep would go directly into the temple where they would be sacrificed. And so they started right here with the sheep gate because it was so important that they get this right, that God's glory would be restored to God's people. And one way that that glory was going to be restored was for, by them making it a priority to get this sheep gate built. This was the most important place to start. Following the completion of the gate, they immediately consecrated it. They immediately held a worship service right there. Man, they prayed together. They probably laid hands upon that gate, and they prayed for those sheep that would walk through that gate to be sacrificed for the sins of the people, their own sins as well as the people of the nation and the land. Faith family, the work that you and I have been commissioned to do is important. Lives depend upon us representing Christ and allowing his glory to shine through us. Notice also, there was a common mission for a saved world. You know, this past week I sat in a classroom with 17 other pastors um, associate pastors and one lay leader. All of us represented 17 or 18 different churches, but all of us had the same vision. And that vision is to see 
people enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You and I have been given a mission as believers. It is to reach the nations for Christ. We have been commanded by Jesus to go and make disciples. In Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19, we read these words. And Jesus said to them all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As well as in Acts 1.8, before Jesus ascended, he gave these words to his disciples. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the utter ends of the earth. You and I have been commanded to go to our Jerusalem, which is our cities, okay? Which will be the local places that you and I have influence over. We've been commanded to go to our Jerusalem. We've been commanded to go to Judea, which would be our state and our nation. We've been commanded to go to Samaria, which represents um, the least of these, okay? And we've been commanded to go to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ amongst those we come in contact with. This isn't a suggestion. This is a command. Nehemiah, man, he could have sat on his vision and he would have lived the rest of his life in misery. Or he could rise up and build. You and I can sit upon our mission, the visions that God has birthed within us and live a miserable life. Or we can rise up and build, rise up and work, rise up and become the change agents that Christ has created us to be. Notice our second point here is dedicated leaders. This work that they were commissioned to do was divided into 14 repair zones. There were 43 teams assigned to build around that, uh, on that wall and amongst those gates. And here's what we can learn from these leaders. Godly leaders set the example. Godly leaders set the example. Notice in verses 3 and 4. Okay, what I'm about to read is I'm about to read um, a bunch of names and some work that they did. But focus in on these names because these names represent leaders, represent people, represent those that worked. The sons of Hassana built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, son of Bana, repaired. What does that tell me right there? Or what does that tell us? You got a leader that had commissioned his workers to rebuild those walls. Godly leaders are usually out front leaders, aren't they? You know, I've never been in the military, but I know that many of you in this room have been in the military. And, and what I know about military leaders is military leaders, they're out front leaders, aren't they? They don't take a back seat. They don't lead from way over here, but they're out front with their troops leading and guiding and directing. That is who we are to be as well as believers in Jesus Christ. We are to be out front leaders leading those that God has given us influence over. What amazes me is if you read through, and when you read through Nehemiah chapter 3 later, what you're going to notice is you're going to notice 
all of the different professions that are mentioned about these leaders. Okay, here's what kind of professions these um, men held. There were government officials. There were priests. There were Levites. There were gatekeepers, goldsmiths, merchants, perfumers, temple servants. How many master craftsmen did I just mention? Zero, right? Zero master craftsmen. Nehemiah wasn't a master craftsman, was he? He was a cupbearer to the king. But guess what that tells me? It tells me that when we are given a vision and when we are given a job to do, God is going to provide the necessary tools and skills and provisions that we need to accomplish that which we have been called to do. You know what? You don't have to have a seminary degree to be a teacher of God's Word. You don't have to have a Bible degree to make disciples. What you have to have is a willing heart committed to read God's Word and study God's Word and apply God's Word and share His Word with other people. All of us in this room that are believers in Jesus Christ, guess what? You can make disciples. You know how I know you can make disciples? Because Jesus wouldn't say make disciples unless He provided us with everything we need to make disciples. Now let's go and make disciples. Notice next, godly leaders motivate motivation is the key to productivity. How many of you have ever experienced that? Where you had someone get in your face and motivate you, and because of that motivation, you accomplish the task that you have been commissioned to do. Now, I've shared this illustration with you before, but I'm going to share it again for those of you who have not heard. Um, One of my favorite teachers in high school was a coach by the name of Cochard. Cochard was was a godly man, first of all, but he was also a great coach. And, And this man taught me as much about football as he did life. So he taught me the game on the field and the game off the field. But I'll never forget this one instance in my football journey. Um, there was a, he, this guy was a, he, he was a jack of all trades. But one thing that he did was he took a, a sled, okay, and he cut that thing in, a, a probably took off about a third of it. So a normal sled would probably be about that high. He made his sled about that high, okay? And as a junior in, in high school, I was a lot taller than I was as a sixth grader. Remember whenever I said that I was small and stumpy? Okay, here I've gotten a little bit taller, and I'll never forget this. One of the things that we had to do is we had to get down in all, on all fours. I'm not going to do that now because I probably wouldn't be able to get up. But we had to get down in all four and get low, and our job was to fire off, hit that, tack, or that, that sled, raise it up, so that we could look to the right and to the left, so that if the ball, if the running back had the ball, we could see where they're at, we could ditch the, 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 the offensive lineman, and we could go make the tackle. Well, because I was so tall, that sled was impossible for me to, to, to get up. And I remember the coach pulling me aside, and it started out kind of as a motivational speech, and, and he, he was trying to encourage me. But I said, I can't do it. Well, that was the absolute wrong thing to say to this man. 
I mean, he just chewed me out right there in front of the rest of the teammates, and he said, I don't ever want to hear you say can't, can't again. Well, let me tell you something. That motivation turned into productivity. Because what happened was, is I got down on the ground, and, and after a few more tries, I finally mastered that sled. And I never had an issue with that sled again. It took the right kind of leader to motivate me to do the work that was set before me. And that is how it is in, 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 in Nehemiah chapter 3. You had these leaders. First of all, you had Nehemiah. Then you had all these other leaders that were tasked with the job. And they motivated their people to rebuild those walls and to rebuild those gates. Sometimes we need people in our lives that can motivate us, right? That can kind of light a fire underneath us. You know what we call those people? We call those accountability partners. Someone that is a, another believer in our life that can breathe life into us and encourage us and motivate us and to get us from being on the, the sideline into the game of life called Christianity. We need those people in our lives. Notice here, the next um, sub-point is this. Godly leaders persevere. You know, here's the one thing that we need to realize is not everybody is willing to do the work. In verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 3, we read, And next to them the Tokites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. So the city of Tekoa is about 11 miles from Jerusalem. And, and I don't know if it was every morning that they would get up or how that it worked with them coming in and rebuilding those walls. But every day there was a group of Tekoites that, that rose up and rebuilt. But the nobles within that city said that we are too good to stoop down so low to do such a menial task. Have you ever run into people like that in the church? They just thought they're too good to do the work. They're, they're, they're too good to get their hands dirty. They're too good to, to maybe even teach a class. That's, that's, that's below me. Well, these, these people from Toka, the nobles, they thought that rebuilding those walls and fortifying that city was, was too menial of a task for them. So they called in sick every day and said, hey, we're, we're, we can't come into the city today to rebuild those walls. Notice what Jeremiah says about such people. In Jeremiah 48, verse 10, we read these words, Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord with slackness. Okay, another way of saying that is they are slackers who do not do the work of the Lord. Let's not be a slacker. When we are tasked and commissioned with the job, let's be obedient to the Lord and do it. Notice next, we see godly leaders go the extra miles. Godly leaders, when they can com complete one job, they look for another job to do. They don't just do a job and throw in the towel and get in the car and go away. They work until the job gets done. What was amazing about these workers from Tekoa, is this. At verse 27, we read these words. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. These men went not just one mile, 
but they went an extra mile. Even though the nobles, the leaders of the city, were too good to work, these men, what did they do? Man, they built one section, and when they finished that section, they transitioned and built another section. Let's work together as a team to accomplish the mission that God has called us to do. Let's not just share with one person, but let's share with two. Let's share with three. Let's share with four. Let's not invite just one family to join us at church. Let's invite one, two, three, four different families. Notice godly leaders involved their families. Over and over in this family, we see the name of a man mentioned next to other men that rebuilt those walls. But notice what we read in verse 12. It says, Next to him, Shalom, the son of Haloish, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Not only did men work to rebuild those walls, but women got their hands dirty rebuilding those walls. What does that tell us? That the work was important. The work was so important that it didn't just re- and, and, and need men to do the work, but women needed to do the work as well. You know, the Great Commission is so important that not only are women to do the work, but so are men to do the work. All of us have been commissioned and set apart to take the gospel around this world. You know, there's no greater satisfaction that I have as a father and as a husband than to be able to do mission work with my family. You know, we've had the opportunity as a family to go on mission trips together. We've had the opportunity to serve together locally, whether that's working with Church Under the Tree or at the Samaritan's Inn or down at the homeless shelter or doing ministry work around this church. And I love doing that with my family. I love getting my hands dirty with my family. Why? Because that's what we have been set apart to do as a family, just like your family. You've been set apart to do the work of ministry as well. Let's serve together as families. Lead your family on mission. Lead them locally, and if the Lord provides an opportunity, lead them domestically or globally as well. Lead your families well by serving together to spread God's glory throughout these streets and around the world. And the final thing that was needed, willing workers. Men and women, students and children, willing to do the work. It's one thing to be called, but it's another thing to answer that call. Nehemiah called many, many people and said, hey, it's time to work. Most of those that he called said, okay, we're going to rise up and build, but not all of them did. So not all of them were willing workers. But may it be said of us that each and every one of us in this room are willing workers. We are a team here. We are Christ's body. We have a mission. We are to reach and make disciples. You know, I came across this illustration um, that Brian Bill shared, but it says one of the fascinating things about geese is that they normally fly in a V formation. I'm sure that all of us have looked up at the sky and we've seen geese as they have flown overhead. And they're always in a V formation. Geese cover thousands of miles oftentimes before they reach their destination. And they only can get to where they're headed if they work together. Here are some fascinating 
facts about geese as they travel together. By flying as they do, the members of the flock create an upward air current for one another. By flying in a V formation, the whole flock gets 71% greater flying range, range than if each goose flew on its own. When one goose gets sick or wounded, two fall out of formation with it and follow it down to the ground to protect it. And they stay there with that goose that is sick until it is able to regain flight status and then they fly off together. It's there, and then... There's the geese in the rear of the formation. They're the ones who do all of the honking. It's their way of announcing that they're following and everything's going well. The repeated honks encourage those in front to stay the course. As I think about this, one lesson stands above all others. It's the natural instinct of geese to work together. You and I are in this together. We are a local body of believers made up of the greater body of believers that have been commissioned to do life together. We work together. We laugh together. We often cry together. We hurt together. We serve together. We do missions together. We fellowship together. We do this because we need each other. Just like you need your family, you need your church family. We do this life together. The Bible is full of one another commands, isn't it? Think about this. James 5.16 says that we are to pray for one another. Hebrews 3.13 says that we are to exhort one another or encourage one another. Galatians 6.2 says that we are to bear one another's burdens. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says build each other up. James 5.16 says, confess our sins to one another. In John 13.34-35, we are to love one another. In Galatians 5.13, we are to serve one another. In Ephesians 5.21, we are to submit to one another. What does that mean? That means that there's no, lane re- no lone rangers in the body of Christ. We can't do this alone. We need one another. We need each other to build one another up. We need each other to serve well, to minister well, to do life inside this church and outside this church. My prayer for all of us this morning is that we will rise up and build and serve together, serve one another and to serve the greater world together. Folks, all of us as believers are on mission together. We have been commanded to go. If you're in this room this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you may not know what it means to go. You may not know what it means to have God's glory dwell in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. You may not know if you were to die today where you'd spend eternity. Well, the Bible is very clear that you're going to spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell. If you're here this morning and if you were to die today and you don't know where you'd spend eternity, in just a moment, I'm going to be standing here at the front. I'd love to share with you how you can enter into an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. You may be here this morning, you've been visiting the church a while, and the Lord is leading you to make Friendship Baptist Church your church home. I'm going to be here at the front. I'd love to share with you more about how you can do that. Let's stand together. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And when I say amen, if there's a decision you need to make, you come.
he's come. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege of being in your house together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for the leader that he was. Thank you that he invested in other people, who invested in other people, who invested in other people, and they completed the mission that you had given them to do, one that, 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 that seemed like it was impossible to do. But Father, you gave them the resolve to do it. May it be said of all of us in this room that all of us lived obediently to you, that we were obedient to the Great Commission, and that when called to go, we have gone. Lord, now this week, I pray that you'll give us opportunities to share with those that we do life with, those that do not have a relationship with you, those that do have a relationship with you that may be wayward, those that, that have a relationship with you but have are just going through some struggles and they need somebody to come alongside them and encourage them. Father, help us to do that. Father, this morning, there may be someone in this room that has yet to enter into a personal relationship with you. I pray today that you'll draw them unto salvation. Father, we love you and we thank you and we ask that you move now in our midst. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.